Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey everyone, welcome to the 47th episode of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you into our world of the financial markets and financial planning to bring you the um, biggest and brightest news from the current week. So good morning to you, Matt. Good morning, Mark. How are you doing today? Doing good. Doing good. Looking forward to the long weekend. Yes. And, markets uh, are closed on Monday and observance of Memorial Day. Yep. So looking forward to hopefully some nice weather to be outside. It would be nice. It's yeah. been a little rainy here in Ohio the last couple of yeah, days. Yeah, like two and a half days straight of, of rain. I don't remember the last time it rained that much here. A lot. Yeah. Um, well, as always, we'll start with the uh, first uh, few minutes of the podcast, just recapping the performance for the month and the year, the major indexes that we track. And these numbers are as of the market close on May 20th. And this data is from Coifin. The S&P 500 index is up 2.03% for the month of May and down 7.93% for the year. The Dow positive 0.95% for the month and down 13.74% for the year. The NASDAQ up 5.47% for the month and up 4.49% for the year. The IWM ETF that tracks the Russell 2000 index is up 2.83% for the month and down 19.12% for the year. The Vanguard International ETF X United States is up 2.41% for the month and down 16.97% for the year. The three-month T-bill yield currently at 0.12%, the two-year Treasury yielding 0.16%, and the 10-year Treasury yielding 0.67%. So, you know, U.S. continues to strongly outperform international markets, Matt, and I know everyone's been calling for the opposite to occur, but it just hasn't happened yet, and obviously, I think a lot of this is due to the strong dollar still. Um, you know, because people have been talking about, well, South Korea is managing this really, really well, but the U.S. markets are still outperforming the South Korean markets. And a lot of that, I think, has to do with, you know, the U.S. dollar, not all of it, but a lot of it. And I also would say that there is optimism worldwide that the American consumer is going to come back. Yeah, I agree. And come back strong. Um, so speaking of that and the American consumer, we'll start out with April retail sales. So they dropped a record 16.4% and clothing sales dropped 79%. And I don't want to come off as, you know, I saying like I knew this was going to happen, but wasn't this kind of expected? In my, in my opinion, absolutely. And I, I mean, think it, ref, it was reflected in, in the prices of these stocks. Yeah. I mean, people couldn't go out and shop. Um, you know, the clothing drop does not surprise me, especially the fact that it was, you know, wasn't in the thick of winter or the peak of, of summer. You know, this doesn't surprise me at all. Yeah. Okay. Um, one thing I noticed, Mark, I'll yeah. throw out there from kind of news headlines of the week is what I would call the, the struggle of small caps. Now, when you did the uh, introduction to the podcast uh, about a minute ago and you were uh, discussing performance, you know, you kind of highlighted the year-to-date performance of small caps are still underperforming. 
So one thing I wanted to, uh, an observation I had for listeners is, you know, last week, small caps in general, which is defined by the S&P small cap 600 just last week was down 7.63%. And that uh, data is from last week alone, last week alone. So that is from Bespoke. Okay. Now, the worst performing subsection of the market last week was small cap value. And um, in general, the average small cap value stock was down around 8.42% just last week alone. And that source was from the Lundloop research note that I read. Can you kind of dig into real quick, just, you know, for listeners that might be joining for the first time, the difference, you know, between the small cap stocks and say stocks in the S&P 500? Great question. So listeners, stocks that are in the S&P 500 are going to be a lot larger in size. And big components of that index listeners is going to be names like Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, Procter & Gamble. Inside small caps, a loose definition is a market cap somewhere between two and a half and three billion or less. Okay, smaller size companies, not as strong or robust balance sheets. More perception is the susceptibility to the COVID quarantine. They got hit a little harder is the perception. Right. And remember, not all stocks and in this index are created equal. Mm -hmm. And the analogy I wanted to throw out there is then when you look at the tech heavy NASDAQ 100 index, which is going to be primarily technology, biotechnology names, Amazon, Microsoft, Apple, Facebook. Okay. Um, When you look at this down 0.92% and the source is bespoke. So when Smalls got hammered over seven last week, NASDAQ uh, 100 was only down about 1% according to Bespoke. Yeah. So, you know, I think the way we talk about this is that, you know, small caps tend to be more volatile, meaning they move more in either direction, you know, when there's an up week or a down week in the S&P 500 or or the Dow. Yes. And so it kind of shows you by these statistics, listeners, that the perceived... Um, I wouldn't hate to see, hate to see the word, uh, use the word safe haven, but the perceived place to be in the market is definitely more in the larger, in, names, in larger right names right now. And especially inside subsections of areas like tech. Right. Okay. Yeah. So just in essence right now, this is what I would call a stock pickers market. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a market where I think you're going to have the performance difference um, between different size companies, small, medium, and large, and growth or value, I think there's going to be a big performance difference for some time Yeah, between yeah. these different areas. Mm-hmm. And um, this plays into our playbook very well of what we do for a living because we are what we would call active managers, meaning we just don't buy the, the S&P 500. We're selective into the names that we own for our clients. Right, yeah. And I'm going to touch on that a little bit here. Um in a couple of minutes, but and then last thing is kind of phased reopening seems to be occurring nationwide. Mark, you want to add anything to that? No, just here. Um, indoor restaurants can open today, I believe. Um, obviously, with capacity restraints due to the six feet social distancing requirements, but sure. that is a good sign. Um, hopefully, we start to see people getting hired back at these restaurants, the ones that are going to make it through this. Um, so I think I'll give you an example of retailers. Thing. So uh, last night, Rachel was like, hey, can you check the next time that Nordstrom Rack is going to open up in in town here? And they're opening up today. Yeah. 
No, so it's, it's like great. you're starting to see the retailers open up again. Yeah, that's positive. I think it's um, you know something that people are both looking forward to, and I think needs to happen. So yeah. Um, so moving on to tweets, articles, and research from the week. Um, start with grocery store costs, Matt. Yeah. So I noticed this, Mark. Um, grocery cost jumped two point six percent in April. It is the largest one month increase, Mark. In 46 years. Any comments about that? Well, the first thing that struck me is that, <clears throat> you know, you always make fun of the CNBCs of the world for using surge wrong, and it was only, you know, <laughs> jump 2.6%. So you use jump, which I think is more fitting, but this chart that we'll post to the show notes um, says food at home prices surge. So there's another more ammo for for what you've been saying, but <laughs> I love getting on that soapbox. And again, this is appropriate use of the word surge. Yeah. So uh, this chart will be available on our website, jessupwealthmanagement.com. Click the podcast tab and the show notes sub tab under that, and you'll be able to see this chart that we're talking about. But I mean, from the chart, it I guess you can say that that they have surged because it's been a long time since they've they've jumped this big. But again, you know, this doesn't surprise me. This isn't like a wow, like I can't believe this happened. It's more of, you know, again, this this was expected because more people are getting their food from the grocery and obviously not going out to 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 dinner and to lunch and to breakfast and it's just supply and demand, I was right? I going to say that, supply and you demand. Know, more, there's more demand for people cooking at home so people can raise prices. So, um, yep. but yeah, interesting for sure. So the next thing I want to bring up to listeners is signs of things returning to normal. This is from Bespoke Investment Group. Um, we've had uh, Paul Hickey on uh, from Bespoke um, a couple of months ago um, during kind of the peak of the um, carnage, I believe, in March. Yeah, I think it correct. was back in March. I can't remember the exact episode, but I can do my best to find it. But um, listeners, I would encourage you to re-listen to that episode with our guest, Paul. He was he was phenomenal. So in um, uh, Bespoke... It was actually, I, it was my first click. It was uh, episode number 39. There we go. Okay. okay. So this was back in March. This was, I think, on March 26th. So if you go to Apple Podcast or Spotify or Stitcher um, or any of the I other Radio. sites that we're on, it's episode number 39 and on or around March 26th. So Bespoke, guys are rock stars there. They had some research, uh, market close, uh, May 15th, Mark, and... It was showing two pieces of data. The first is pollution data for Los Angeles, okay? And it shows the prior five-year average, and it shows where we're at now. And what you're going to find is that things are turning back to normal very quickly in LA, especially over the last two weeks, based upon this chart. Now, to help quantify it even further... Bespoke obtained data from Apple, their mapping data, through the second week of May, and it shows how many people are showing Apple Map route request. Mm -hmm. Okay, that would make sense to kind of quantify this. And it's back to 80%, to be exact, 81.68% of where it was prior to the quarantine. So um, that's, in my opinion encouraging data right because people are driving they need directions they're going out again so that's right good which is interesting because i think la is 
one of the places that haven't <laughs> that's haven't, been on lockdown still. right yeah right. so that's interesting which is very interesting mm-hmm. all right uh and again listeners the reason i'm bringing these things up is to provide hints or bits of factual data that can lead to where the american consumer is going to be when this all kind of normalizes in the months to come and if you think about it you know the u.s economy two-thirds of it is all consumer consumption driven so by watching this data for mark and i it gives us hints to determine is the consumer getting back out there are they going to be spending how is that going to affect the corporate profitability of say the stocks that we own for clients and that is why we watch a lot of these data points yeah and another one that was encouraging so um, one more bespoke on that uh, market close report from May 15th, Mark. It was their thoughts of the state of the market, okay? And they really had three things they kind of laid out on their, on their thoughts. One, earnings will bounce after all this, but how much? And that kind of alludes to my, my comment just a couple seconds ago. Second, the answer is dependent on COVID severity. Whether more fiscal support arrives and other factors like business closures, corporate investment, state and local government spending. Now, we're going to talk about another um, congressional bill that's being debated and proposed as we speak. I'll touch that uh, in a second. Three and last, those are the risks that will decide whether stocks can ride to new highs or are set to flip lower again. Makes sense. Kind of plays along with our eight questions that we've laid out to listeners the last couple of weeks during the podcast. Things that we perceived the market was going to be monitoring very closely. Yeah. Last thing, Mark, I'd like to discuss in uh, tweets and research is the initial details of the latest House Democrat proposal of a new and fresh $3 trillion stimulus package. And yes, I said trillion. And we should note that so far, Senate Republicans are against this bill. And remember, you're going to need them to get this through to President Trump's desk. Right. A couple things I'd like to highlight. Um, This one, they labeled the HEROES Act. Okay. And um, of this $3 trillion stimulus package, Mark, first and the highest allocation is almost $900 billion. So almost a trillion in grants to state and local governments to help them defray the fiscal impact. The next is $350 billion for another round of $1,200 per adult child stimulus checks for income earners under $75,000. Okay, that was the next kind of allocation, it says. $175 billion for public health fund, um, COVID treatment, test, tracing, Education funding, $100 billion grants to states and colleges, um, $100 billion for renters, eviction prevention grants. And then I'll highlight just a couple more that I thought that caught my eye. Um, they had one for the post office, $25 billion um, to kind of cover the lost revenue and worker protection. They had farm support, direct payments to farmers for $16.5 billion. And then I'll just cherry pick one more, highways. $15 billion to mitigate COVID impacts on their budgets. You know, remember, you know, there's a gasoline tax. And if people aren't driving as much, they ain't getting the money that they need to repair these roads and bridges, which 
I could very easily sit here and say they need a lot of work anyways. Right. A tremendous amount of work. I think that's yeah, universal, universally agreed upon. Um, there's also some proposed taxation changes in this. So um, an example is they're going to um, expand um, the eligibility for an end earned income tax credit, as an example. And they're going to make child tax credits fully uh, refundable and they're raising the amounts. So, again, that's just kind of a headline on that. I just wanted to see what your thoughts were with this eye popping three trillion dollar stimulus package. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I think one thing that it addresses that I think we had questions about was, um, you know, for like renters. So an eviction pre- uh, prevention grants. Um, so I think that's positive. Um, I think it's a potential positive for real estate. Yeah, I think it is too. Right. And we'll talk about real estate that has stayed strong that a lot of people thought that it wasn't going to here in a second. Um, obviously for, um, where is it here? Uh not tracing. I mean, part of it is tracing, but just more money for tests Yeah, <laughs> to make tests more readily available. I think that's extremely important. It was a chunk, Mark, $175 billion. Yeah. And um, so the biggest part of this bill is funding grants to, uh, to state and local governments. And I think this is interesting because there have been several people in Congress that have opposed the grants to publicly traded businesses and and sometimes even small businesses but they're willing to give 900 billion to state and local governments and i think that's kind of contradictory i mean obviously it's not the same but to keep things running and to keep jobs i think it it's you can kind of compare that and i i don't know how you can be for one and against the other Yeah, I think what you're trying to say is listen you know these politicians are elected by the citizens of their state some happen to work for local and state governments. Yeah. And some happen to work for private enterprise. Right. So I don't think you can disseminate or pick winners and losers, whether someone works for a nonprofit, for the government, for profit companies. It doesn't work that way. Yeah. Yeah. Because so if all <clears throat> votes are created equal, if Mark, you get one vote and I get one vote, it shouldn't disseminate the fact that I work for the government. And you don't. Right. Or exactly. vice versa. Yeah. Yeah. So that that's interesting to me. But I thought it was, that's, that is interesting. Um, but yeah, other than that, I mean, I think this is all all pretty good stuff in here. Again, you know, Jerome Powell, the head of the Fed, was on 60 Minutes on Sunday. And he, you know, has been very vocal that he thinks that, you know, there's a lot more stimulus that is needed. So maybe this is a part of that. <clears throat> you know, going back to the whole Powell interview on 60 Minutes. You know, um, he was very direct when they were asking, you know, where's this money coming from that that you are um, coming up with these liquidity programs that you've reenacted from the 07, 08 and 09 financial crisis? You know, where's this money coming from? And he's like, well, we print it. Well, we we digitally print it and then we go out there and we buy treasuries, mortgage-backed securities. Now they're even buying corporate bond exchange-traded funds, and they're flooding the marketplace with liquidity. And it's just interesting how, you know, it's not even a physical printing press, though he says there's a component of that on the Mm -hmm. 60 Minutes interview. He's like, literally, we create it digitally. 
And this reminds me of the 60 Minutes interview back in the great financial crisis where um, they had Ben Bernanke. And Ben Bernanke said the same thing then. They're like, where's this money coming from? And he's like, we are creating it out of thin air. And to sit here and think that at some point you're not going to have a hangover effect in the terms of, say, inflation at some point, I think would be an extremely naive statement. Yeah, I think so, too. But again, we saw this back in 07 and 08, right? And interest rates remained low after that. We didn't really have inflation. So, I mean, can this just go on forever where where we're not going to see the hangover effects of it? So I think the difference between that and now is you have very targeted congressional bills that are targeting Main Street America. And they really failed to do that in 07, 08, and 09. So my, uh, my perception and uh, my feeling, in my opinion, is that you are going to see a quicker comeback than we saw in 07, 08, and 09. And with the magnitude of liquidity that's been fl- injected into the system, I think you will actually see a quicker rebound than you saw back then. Hence, the statistical chances of inflation issues, in my opinion, are a lot higher. Mm-hmm. Okay. We'll see if I'm right in the next couple of years. Yeah, we'll have to come back to this point. But okay. again, this is not going to be anytime soon. No. Okay. No. Um, I had a couple things I wanted to talk about. So uh, the first thing was a quote from Tom Boley's blog called Trading Places. By the way, it's a fun, that's a phenomenal movie. I love that I, movie. Everyone wants to Listeners. go watch an old movie with Eddie Murphy. Oh, it's great. great Dan movie. Aykroyd. Yeah, yeah, awesome movie. So this was on May 17th, and this his blog is on stockcharts.com. So uh, Tom says this. While we've seen a nice 30% surge in the S&P 500 since the March 23rd bottom, I believe owning the SPY, which is the ETF that tracks the the uh, excuse me, the S&P 500 is doing your portfolio a big disservice. Why? Because you own a lot of stocks that you do not want to own. I want to buy this guy a glass of wine. <laughs> Airlines are dead money. In the bullish examples that I provided above, I showed you the diverging AD lines. And this is just um, an indicator that he uses to see what has been accumulating or who has been accumulating what stocks in the course of a trading day. And he's he's watching this um, listeners. uh, He's watching this on his charts, right on his stock charts. This illustrates the willingness of professionals to buy and accumulate stocks that were being trashed with all the others at the opening bell. Thinking, uh, think baby being thrown out with the bathwater, which we mentioned when the carnage was happening. Yep, everything got hit. Warren Buffett said that Berkshire Hathaway sold its entire interest in four airlines. He's the best value investor on the planet. He sees so little hope for this group that he sold every single share of his holdings. And I'm supposed to buy? Um, no, thank you. But when you buy the SPY, you're owning a piece of United Airlines and many other airlines. You're also owning scads of financials, industrials, and energy stocks. Many market environments are categorized as stock pickers markets, but I don't believe it's ever been more true than right now. Put your money to work for you. I did not read these notes prior to my comments earlier, so I was unaware that you were going to share that. Um, I agree 100%. Um, I'm going to throw something out there controversial regarding Buffett. Okay. I think he fell asleep at the wheel for a major opportunity. 
he could have had the opportunity at the peak carnage to combine even further one or two of these airlines get control of all the slots at the key airports in long term it would have been genius i mean the guy likes mini monopolies coke pepsi you know credit card companies he's big at american express he's not warm and cuddly okay so at the end of the day he could have cornered a part of the airline market in long term it would have been huge and I think he fell asleep at the wheel and lost the opportunity. So let me ask you this question. This is on another podcast uh, that I listened to by um, Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson. It's called Animal Spirits. They were asking the question, did he not buy anything because he didn't want his last deal to potentially not work out? That's another good opinion. You know, as he's gotten bigger in his track record and his legacy becomes important to him. He doesn't want like, his last I'm deal gonna, I'm to not be take his legacy. Risk. Right. I don't want people to think I lost my touch, which is interesting. Or another thing that could be happening that me and you have talked about is that their insurance business is not doing well, which yes. no one's talking about. So <clears throat> listeners, what happened behind the scenes with uh, Warren Buffett over the years is one of his core businesses is something called reinsurance. OK, so when you have these large insurance companies, whether they're life uh, uh, could be property and casualty, could be specialty insurance. So I'm just going to cherry pick uh, Transamerica, John Hancock, MetLife. They don't take all the risk themselves on various insurances that they, that they um, cover. So what they do is they seek to diversify their risk by getting what we would call reinsurance. It's another layer behind the scenes. And Warren Buffett in Berkshire Hathaway, that's a huge business for them, okay? And um, the perception that I was speculating on is that through this correction, he was probably concerned, hey, if this continues, I could have some major losses and he would have to pay people out. And he wanted to keep that 120, 125 billion cash hoard fresh right. because he didn't know at the end of the day how much of that was gonna go away quick. Right. And um, again, going back to the airlines, I think people will look back and he missed, in my opinion, a golden opportunity because it's naive to think that in the next several years, you're going to see travel go right back up. And I highlighted several podcasts ago, the travel traffic, uh, airline traffic after 9-11. And it took Mark, I think, about seven years to get back to its peak. I would argue it's going to be quicker than that this time around. And he could have controlled 30, 40% of all the slots at these airports. Slots is like a gate. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I think retrospectively, he could have done it very cheap. I mean, you saw what the market caps of these airlines were. Yeah. So, and he probably could have shoved it through congressional approval, antitrust, because he needed the money. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. He and he did the complete opposite. He just got rid of everything. Yeah, we'll see. And I think you could be right with the speculation from that podcast that you know what, it um, in his opinion, you know the fruit wasn't worth the squeeze. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, that's a good one. Um, okay, so moving on. Uh, this is about real estate. So this is a quote from the article titled "Home Buying Demand Passes Pre-Coronavirus Levels." Inventory down 24% by Adam Weiner on Redfin. This is going to be a good one. Okay. 
So um, Adam says interest in buying homes, which to be sure does not mean actual sales measured by Redfin has surged as buyers look outside of major cities amid uh, low interest rates and tight inventories. Median listing prices are up 5% and a bidding war battle or excuse me, bidding war battle royales are back. Dave Hawkinson, a Redfin agent in Seattle, said, quote, my client was in a 24 offer bidding war for a (laughs) 1960s home that grandma had never updated. It was listed for 360K. We bid 400K and didn't even come close. (laughs) So real estate staying strong. I mean, this and this isn't the only thing that I've read you know, to, to back that up. Yeah. But. I'm seeing this, I'm seeing this in actual factual data from, from friends and clients. Um, I have, um, some very close friends, um, here in Dayton, Ohio area, suburb of Kettering. And, um, they listed their house and, uh, the next day it, they had, uh, multiple offers. And of course they accepted one of those. Yeah. Um, I've heard some speculation in regards to, you know, can these buyers get financing? And though initially through the carnage in March and even in early April, we were hearing that some uh, banks were stepping back from mortgage lending or requiring enhanced uh, down payments. You know, I have a good friend who is a mortgage broker in town here. Um, He can uh, transact um, mortgages in all 50 states. He was telling me that not only are things normal for him, but they're even still doing jumbo mortgages. So there was some headlines in certain areas that banks weren't willing to do jumbo mortgages. And I think that um, if this data continues in this fashion, Mark, you're going to see all that normalize quicker than people think. My opinion. Yeah, no, I agree. Just an interesting, interesting uh, numbers there. Okay, so moving on to the financial planning topic of the week. So this was a blog post by our friend who we've had on the podcast before, Ashby Daniels. Um, And Ashby's blog is called The Retirement Field Guide. And this one is on my weekly list, Matt, of blogs that I read religiously. Hey, he's sharp. Yeah, very. And uh, and this one is titled Equities in Retirement, a 30-year case study. And this is something that I wanted to address on the podcast for several weeks now, but I was trying to figure out the best way to explain it. And I don't think, you know, this subject could be explained any better than how Ashby conveys this in this blog post. So the subject is around the perceived risks of investing in stocks over bonds and the reality of the risks of each investment. Okay. So let's hop into this. So Ashby starts the article by saying, whenever I ask soon to be retirees what the ultimate goal of investing in retirement is, the most common answer I receive is I don't want to run out of money. Pretty straightforward, right? Yep. Here's the problem. When I ask many of those same individuals what the primary objective of their retirement portfolio is, the typical response is preservation of capital. Whether retirees realize this or not, those two goals run almost exactly counter to one another. If your goal is to preserve your capital, you are likely to invest primarily in fixed income assets, which, especially at today's interest rates, are barely keeping up with inflation. 
Making matters worse, it seems likely that interest rates will increase over the next few decades, which is a bad thing for bondholders. The interest your bonds pay doesn't keep up with inflation. Then you are, if your interest, excuse me, if the interest your bonds pay doesn't keep up with inflation, then you are likely digging into your principal every year you need distributions. And if interest rates are rising, your balance may be falling at the same time. Listeners need to hear this. So can you kind of, can we walk through really quick the, you know, the inverse relationship between bonds and and interest rates and and what happens? I think uh, I'll do the best I can to kind of explain it in like a minute or two. Yeah. So listeners, how this works is with rates as low as they are today, and if you were to go out and buy, let's just say it's a 10-year treasury bond, okay? And Mark gave the interest rate earlier. It's about what, 0.7%, mm-hmm. somewhere around there. So well, let's just call it, say, two-thirds of 1%. The problem is when you buy that 10-year bond today, that coupon or that interest rate you are going to receive annually for the next 10 years is fixed, Locked in. Locked in. Not adjusted for inflation. Exactly. Unless it's a tips, but we're not going to get into that. Exactly. So let's fast forward to three years from now. And let's say we start to see the Fed raising interest rates because they flooded the market with money and they're starting to see price inflation. And a way that you counteract that is the Fed raises interest rates. So you fast forward to three years. The federal government continues to issue bonds so they can run. And at that point, in order to attract investors, they have to offer a higher interest rate on the newly issued bonds. So in that example, you have seven years left on your bond that you bought, and you're locked in at 0.7%. But wait a minute, the new 10-year bonds are issuing, Mark, people are getting 2%. So if you went into the marketplace and you tried to sell that bond you bought three years ago, of course you could sell it. But price is yet another question because the person buying it from you, if you put $10,000 into it, right, and the interest rate in that example is 0.7%, okay, you're getting $70, okay? So the person buying it from you knows that, but wait a minute, the newly issued ones are going to pay $200 in my example, Hence, the price they're going to pay you is going to be less than what you paid for it. Right. To account for that lower annual interest coupon that you're going to receive. And we've been in a bull market, quote unquote, for bonds for some time. And when this reverses, and I'm not naive enough to say that it won't, in my opinion, it's a matter of when, not if. So when interest rates do go up and people own these 10-year, 15, 20, 30-year bonds and you want to go sell them, you they're going to be sell, sold at a lot less in value than you paid for it. Right. Now, if you hold it the entire period, yeah, you'll get your money back at the end. But there's an opportunity cost to not buying the new 10-year treasury bond that's paying 2%. Yes. So hopefully that helps kind of lay it out simplistically for listeners. Yeah. Thank you for that. So Ashby Ashby continues on and says, this can result in the exact outcome uh, people fear most, running out of money, albeit they may run out of money without the perceived risk of investing in the stock market. I don't think the goal of retirement 
should be principal preservation. The goal of a retirement portfolio is to provide a growing income that meets or exceeds inflation and to accrete principal if at all possible. That's a big that's and I agree with that statement. Yeah. Now, I think I know where this is going, so listeners pay close attention here. If your income doesn't keep up with inflation, you almost have no choice but to dig into principal, which is the antithesis of retirement income planning. So how might you accomplish both goals of growing your income and your portfolio? It so, ain't going to be in 100% bonds that's no, yielding 0.7%. Especially with where interest rates are. So... You know, I so Ashby goes on and he provides, you know, some examples of investing, you know, 75% of your retirement portfolio into equities and 25% into bonds and what the dividend income and is and all that stuff. Um, so people can go read this at his blog and we'll link to it in the show notes. But the last point I want to make about this is that there is such a belief that that stocks are extremely risky because that's what we've all been taught, right? That's what's all that's fed to us in the media. That's what is fed to people in college, that stocks are more risky than bonds. But in my opinion, it's more risky not to invest in stocks and think you are taking no risk, which is the furthest thing from the truth, in my opinion. I mean, look what happened in in March. You know, corporate bonds fell 20% or whatever it was. Almost from their in line peak. with stocks there for a time. Right. So, again, it's very naive to think that if you're in a 75 percent bond allocation, 25 percent stocks, that you're not taking much risk. I think that that's that is a false uh, sense of security, if you believe that. That's a good point. I mean, my two cents is, you know, when it comes to stocks, your time horizon delineates the risk. So if somebody's going to invest in stocks and their time horizon's two weeks, yeah, that's risky. If your time horizon's two years, completely changes the conversation and the narrative. Mm-hmm. And the other point I want to make is categorizing that all stocks are equal from a risk perspective is also a very naive statement. And yeah. I think there's the, the media tends to generalize that. And you and I know with the way that we're active managers, that's not the case in our opinions. Mm-hmm. And if Ashby's right, and if, you know, interest rates do rise over the next couple of years, that's going to be, you know, not good for for bonds that people are holding right now. So, you know, I think you just have to be really careful from how you view risk in terms of stocks versus fixed income, because just because it's labeled as fixed income does not mean that you are not taking risk. I think there's a huge misconception that, you know, people are like, hey, I thought, you know, bonds, they were super conservative. Well, yeah, I mean, you can argue that, but it doesn't Relative mean- Relative to other asset classes right, like you stocks. Can't, yeah, but you can't, there's no free lunch, right? That's right. Unless you're completely in cash, even sitting completely in cash, there is significant risk for that. There is no investment that does not have risk. And I think that's the biggest psychological factor that people need to get their heads around. And I'm, I, I want to There's risk putting under your bed. Yeah, your exactly. So and I want to I want to to help lead that charge and educate people more. You know, this isn't me waving my finger at people. I just I want to get it out there that people need to understand that, you know, investing 
There are risks in investing in any asset. There are risks of not investing in any assets, right? And keeping sure. your money in cash. And, I, and we just need to get people over that psychological hump of that because, you know, they're taught in school, stocks are risky, bonds are conservative. That's it. Yep. And it goes back to my point about time horizon. I think that once your time horizon changes, um, I think your people are willing to accept the fact that, hey, I need to be in stocks for the long term for a portion of my portfolio. And, you know, the short term periods of volatility, i.e. mid-February to the end of March, is a byproduct of those longer uh, and those better rates of return over the long term. Mm-hmm. Right? right. That's just the way it works. Yeah. So you can't sit there and make high single digits, low double digits rates of return by being 100 percent bonds. Yeah. It's not going to happen. No. <laughs> not with these interest rates. No. <laughs> Okay, but um, really good article. So again, I encourage you to go check it out. We link to it on our show notes. Um, So that's jessupwealthmanagement.com. Hover over the podcast tab and click the show notes and you'll be able to go read uh, this full blog post by Ashley or Ashley Ashby. Sorry, my man. (laughs) He's a great guy. Um, Okay, we'll uh, we'll wrap it up and leave it there unless you have anything else, Matt, that you want to talk about. Uh, before we call it quits for this week? Nope. I hope everybody is able to unplug and enjoy their Memorial Day weekend. Um, We appreciate all of the sacrifices um, for our um, armed forces here in the U.S. Absolutely. Um, You know, those that are no longer with us, uh, my uh, mom's father, uh, my grandfather, who's no longer with us, was uh, in the Navy. And a guy lied about his age just to get in. (laughs) You know, he was 16, said he was 18. You hear stories about that all the time. Uh, I got a client that's no longer uh, with us. His wife's still a a client of ours, and I'm very close with him. This gentleman was uh, a World War II hero. Um, This guy uh, did a um, one-way mission in a bomber, and they wanted to psychologically... Uh, really affect the Nazis. And so what they did is they went so deep into enemy territory, they wouldn't have enough gas to get back. And the story about this guy is they did their bombing run. They ran out of gas, ditched the plane in Yugoslavia, and him and the eight other guys ended up getting out. Wow. And they um, got with the rebellion in Yugoslavia and made their way to, um, to allied territory. And one of the stories he told me before he passed is they had all the eight guys hidden in a caravan that was stacked with a lot of hay. And it looked like they were moving this hay from one farm to the other, and they got stopped at a Nazi checkpoint. And the Nazis put bayonets on the end of their rifles. And just to see if anybody was in it, they didn't want to waste bullets. They just stabbed, went through, stabbed all the hay. And would you believe of all the eight guys, no one got hurt. Wow. And they got out. That's pretty crazy. So just stories like that. We're just very appreciative for all the freedoms that we have in America. And absolutely. Um, I hope people reflect on this weekend. And also there's a little bit of, um, I think, disconnectedness right now in America. There's a lot of decisiveness. You're right. I'm wrong. Um, it could be political views. It could be views about COVID and how we should move forward. And I think that I would like for people to take an opportunity to realize that it is okay to agree to disagree. Yeah. And it's okay to have a conversation with somebody that might not have the same exact viewpoint as you. But you know what? That's what makes America great Mm -hmm. is the ability for us to have those freedoms. 
And so I just want to throw out there for any of our um, listeners that are military or have family that's military, we appreciate all the sacrifices you give us. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it, it's especially special because uh, this year, because, you know, everyone is so thankful for all the healthcare workers and, you know, everyday people that are out there putting, you know, their health on the line to fight this virus absolutely. where all of our service members this is par for the course for them. They do this every day. Absolutely. So, um, yeah, thank you to everyone and who their has families. served and, and, yeah, is, and their families is serving. So um, we hope everyone has a good weekend. And thanks for tuning in to the 47th episode of the Independent Advisors podcast. If you haven't gone back through our catalog, uh, go back and listen. We have 46 others that you can listen to. And hopefully one of them can spark an idea for you um, and something that you can change in your financial life to uh, to improve your own personal situation. So uh, with that being said, we will be back with you next week and everyone enjoy the weekend. Take care, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. And also check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. Here you'll find links to every episode of the Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words, questions, and topics in the subject line to mark at jessupwealthmanagement.com, and we'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.